The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to any new folks today. So we've been looking at this very well-known map that the Buddha used called the Five Hindrances for quite a while now, maybe another week, and then we'll be moving on to the next map. And the, the way of using these maps is just to understand that uh, in order to recognize anything in life, our thinking, the conceptual maps, the ideas we have can either hinder our ability to see and understand what's going on, or can support it. So the idea of a map that's actually going to support awareness, support the clarity of awareness, would be a map where the mind uses it but doesn't get stuck by it. So we've been looking at the mental qualities of greed and anger, dullness, restlessness, and now the fifth hindrance is doubt. But we don't want to get stuck with the, I, the word doubt. I'm somebody who has a lot of doubt, or I'm somebody who doesn't have any doubt. Or doubt's not a bad thing, doubt's a good thing. So whatever idea we have about doubt, we want instead to use the word doubt to more quickly and clearly discern, see, this particular quality of mind. The kind of mind state or quality of mind that's circular in nature and freezes up or undermines a response, a wholehearted response to life in the moment. Because we have to think a little bit more about it. That's the very nature of doubt is, oh, let me get a little more clear about what I should do, what I shouldn't do. Let me think a little bit more. And so we keep trusting that instinct, that habit of reflecting a little bit more, considering a little bit more, wondering a little bit more. And we never actually, in a sense, apply ourselves to the moment and then learn from the response that we get back from life. Well, that didn't work very well, but at least we're learning something, or that really worked well. That was, that was the appropriate response for this particular situation in my life. So in order to use this map, you know, again, greed, aversion, dullness, restlessness, and now doubt, we need to just uh, start with, you know, maybe you don't know what doubt is, but you're just, you hear the, the description, and then you'll be observant of your different experiences of mind, and then it will just dawn on you, oh, oh, this is what the Buddha must have been pointing to when he used the word doubt. So then we're starting to be independent, like our understanding of what doubt is doesn't depend so much on somebody's description because we've directly seen, oh yeah, when the mind sees in this way or understands or gets involved in its emotional patterns in this way, that's, I'll call that doubt. And I'll organize, I'll categorize those types of experiences in this way so that I more quickly recognize it. Oh yeah, that's just doubt. And so if you're feeling like this, uh, these talks and the work we've been doing with the hindrances have been useful, then in the next week or so, it'd be nice for each of us to get clear about the particular tapes or patterns of doubt that arise in your mind or your heart. So that next week, for example, if you come and you're you know, hanging out in the lobby before or after the program and somebody just comes up to you and says, okay, what are, the, what are the top five patterns of doubt in your mind? And you'd be able to say, well, this is where I've been seeing it pretty regularly. You know, in this situation, when this circumstance in my life comes up, I notice that circular quality, of what, I, what I'm calling doubt. And this is how Joseph Goldstein describes it in his book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. Those of you who are following along, we're now on chapter 19. And Joseph says, in terms of doubt, this is the state of uncertainty, wavering, and indecision. 
It's like coming to a crossroad and not knowing which way to go. The mind simply wavers back and forth between alternatives and we end up not going anywhere. Unnoticed doubt is the most dangerous of the hindrances because it can bring our practice to a standstill. I'll read a little bit more, but the thing about that is when we're constantly thinking about the moment instead of opening to the moment, to the way it is, then we're not actually connected. So we're not, in a sense, our choice, our way of being, how we're relating, the choices we're making. It's not being informed from a connection to the moment. It's just being informed from this self-contained mental pattern of, I don't know what I should be doing. Should I do this? Should I do that? Am I up to it? Should I be at Common Ground tonight or should I be home resting? Should I be with this person? Have this job? What should I do? So we can keep spinning. Being When we're spinning in our thought, we're disconnected. So we're not getting any more clarity. And so we have more doubt because we're more disconnected from the moment because we're caught up in our thoughts. So it has this negative feedback loop. Unnoticed doubt is the most dangerous of the hindrances because it can bring our practice to a standstill. When doubt is strong and paralyzes us with indecision, it doesn't even give us an opportunity to take a wrong turn and then to learn from our mistakes. With doubts, we're always checking ourselves, vacillating, trying to decide. And then next, uh, Joseph quotes Jan Martel, the person who wrote Life of Pi. Maybe you saw the movie or read the book. There's a quote from that book. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Maybe I mentioned that last week. It's one of my favorite quotes about doubt. Because... We're choosing to churn, to think about something that can't be figured out by thinking. What can't be figured out by thinking? Life. <laughs> and here's the, here's the really terrible thing about how, our, how the thinking mind works, is we do make choices to get married or not to get married, to go out or not go out, to take this job or not to take the job, to come to Common Ground on Sunday night or not, or wear this shirt or not wear this shirt. So we're making choices all the time. And the thing what our thinking mind does is that in a way it, it imagines that my thinking led to the choice. But when we really observe carefully, we see that choosing happens and the rationalization, like how I chose, that I chose. Choosing is a natural process. It arises naturally. You don't have to, like we think, you know, I have to choose to go home. I guarantee you, if you just wait to the end of the program, whether you decide you, you will go home <laughs> eventually. Now, you, some of you might get really stubborn. <laughs> I'll show him. <laughs> That's why we have a bouncer. <laughs> Evelyn, right? <laughs> Evelyn will make you go home. But No, but seriously, try this sometimes when you, you feel like uh, you, don't, you can't make a decision. And instead of thinking, I really got to make a decision, step back in a way and... Well, it will be, have the thought or the attitude, it will be interesting what decision will be made. It will be interesting. So we're taking, just to be simplistic, we're taking the role of the observer. So there is this personality or this life. It's churning along due to all of these different forces that are at play. At play and we'll see, well, will I ask him or her out? Will I do this or do that? And we'll see. Okay, we'll see. Or... Monday's coming. Well, maybe Monday can happen. Like how I'm going to handle the situation. Well, maybe we can have the general intention not to cause harm. But not impose like this idea that I should have it all figured out. Sometimes it's better just to be to clarify 
our deepest values than specifically to demand a strategy for how we're going to do life. I don't know how I'm going to do, you know, I'm here now at this age, I don't know how I'm going to do the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but I have more clarity about what value, what values I have. So we can feel rested, grounded in the values, and then really open to how they play themselves out given all the different twists and turns that arise for us. So we have to be careful because of our conditioning, the thinking mind that says, I have to know, you know, that demands meaning, that demands clarity, that demands uh, like how I'm going to get from here to where I want to be. That masquerades as wisdom, like, oh, that's me trying to take care of myself. But it assumes something that really isn't justified. It assumes that that thinking, planning, defining, and then expecting, that you know, kind of fixing the mind in a particular way actually leads to skill and happiness. It doesn't. And we can just check that out for ourselves. The Buddha says, there is, there are things causing doubt. Frequently giving unwise attention to them, that is the nourishment for the arising of doubt that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of doubt that has arisen. So this is interesting. Think about some of those confusing places in your life where you have doubt. There are things or places in our life, situations causing doubt, frequently giving unwise attention to them. So like if I look at an uncertain, undefined, confusing, and maybe painful place in my life now, so frequently giving unwise attention. So unwise attention would be, in an ignorant way, assuming that I can figure this out. I see this, I have a couple of situations going on in my life, and I really try to work with this. But, you know, when we work with things, it means, you know, I think it's not unfair to say 80% of the time we're failing, meaning we think we're working skillfully, but we're just falling into the old habit, doing what we've always done, relating the same way we've related before, getting the same results. The heart gets frustrated or is more confused or as confused as it was before. So what I've been noticing is, you know, as I, you know, it's not even so much I'm bringing this to mind, it's just showing up, the situation, painful, difficult situation is showing up in my mind. And then, I've, because I've looked at this thousands of times now, I'm not kidding, then... Uh, what I'm beginning to discern is that there's an expectation. Like, uh, like one way to articulate that expectation is that things should be rational or that people should be rational or that people should be responding in that situation in a way that fits my definition of what's rational or appropriate. And, it, and I realize that as I look more deeply that the mind is shocked that this person, these people, see things the way that they see them. Because from my point of view, it's so clearly not that way. And then I realized the, the arrogance of like the way... I'm, I'm not saying that I feel I'm wrong, but I'm realizing that the idea that this is the right way to perceive the situation is subjective. And that's a fright... You know, it's a... In Buddhist terms, we, we call that opening to dukkha, the noble truth of the unsatisfactoriness of life. Noble, like it's, an, it's a liberating truth. This is not dismal, but initially we don't want to do it because we want to assume that although at times the world is messy and disorderly, fundamentally it's a safe place. But it, this world is fundamentally neither safe nor unsafe. It's just the way that it is. It's just this natural process unfolding due to innumerable causes and conditions. And it's only our human conditioned mind that wants to know, is it a safe place? Is it a good place? Or is it an evil, bad place? But it's neither evil nor good. It's just nature 
unfolding due to causes and conditions. And at times, like when it's unfolding in the way we like it, we think, oh, this is really a good place. I can trust the world. And when it's doing something else that we don't understand or that threatens us in some way, we feel like there, there are evil forces. And it's not fair. We feel betrayed by life. Or we feel like, you know, we need to find our savior or somebody or something, some teaching that will slay the dragons, the bad things in life, and restore goodness to the rightful place. And this is shocking for us. And one of the reasons we circle with doubt a lot in our life, doubt about myself, doubt about our everything, basically, is an unwillingness to settle into life as it is, into the mind, the heart as it is. And another way to talk about that is our ideas about things, our ideas about ourselves, our ideas about anything, are always going to be limited. They're a useful tool, especially for communicating, having ideas, concepts. But in terms of uh, finding safety and security and uh, meaning, conceptualizing, thinking, using ideas, they're very limited. Ultimately, they're completely frustrating. I remember once Gil Fransdell, one of the West Coast teachers, wonderful teacher, he said, uh, Buddhism is much more about looking at our need for meaning than it is trying to figure out what is meaningful, what is the meaning, what's right. But really getting interested in how this mind wants meaning, wants to define things. Like even on the level of like, Am I doing a good job now or not such a good job? Because the uncertainty is scary for us. So part of working with doubt, see, this is the problem with doubt. We think that the way to deal with doubt is to give doubt what it wants. It wants the answer. So we think, okay, what's the answer? But see, thinking that there is an answer and thinking that we can get the answer is what leads to that experience of the ground falling out from under us. No, that's not it. No, that's not it. And we keep tumbling into the next thought, into the next way of an analyzing the situation, always thinking that the truth or you know, certainty is around the corner. If I just apply myself, if I just make a little bit more mental effort to figure it out, I'll get there. I'll figure it out. But instead, the resolution of doubt is... You could say, connecting to the way it is now. So it's, and the thing is, when we're feeling a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, we are, the mind is identified with the idea that I don't know, and I need to know, or I'm unclear, and I want to be clear. That's a yucky feeling. So to connect with the way things are, the first thing we have to do when we're working with doubt is we have to be willing to feel the unpleasantness of doubt or uncertainty, confusion. It's an unpleasant feeling. And we have to be willing to feel it without it triggering the mind wanting to think in order to clarify the doubt, without the mind reflexively going back to doing what it always has done with doubt, which is to find that conceptual answer or that conceptual meaning, that puts doubt aside. And this is where fundamentalism comes from, where we hold on to our idea as a counterweight to doubt. So, and there's a, I forget where this line came from, but it's really useful. If you pluck certainty out of the universe, you also inevitably pluck uncertainty, vulnerability. You can't have truth grounded, this is it, without doubt. Maybe I'm wrong. You know? And this is how it is with any sort of fundamentalism. Even nihilism or atheism or whatever can be a kind of fundamentalism. You know, there isn't anything. The Buddha was wrong or Jesus was wrong or Muhammad was wrong. or So, we want some solid ground, but then we're vulnerable to 
you know, our own idea that, you know, coming up in our own mind that, well, maybe, or somebody else having a different view, like, how could they not see this? How could they see it that way? What's wrong with them? Here's how the Buddha uh, describes doubt in more detail. He says, there are things, in terms of undermining the doubt, there are things which are wholesome or unwholesome, blameless or blameworthy, noble or low, and other contrasts of dark and bright, frequently giving wise attention to them. That is the denourishing or the starving of the arising doubt that has not yet arisen and the end of the increase and strengthening of doubt that is already there. So basically, the Buddha is saying that if you want to weaken or starve doubt when it's in your mind, as you're looking at your mind and as you're at your experience, see things in terms of what is skillful and what is unskillful. Because... The, what the mind really wants is some meaning, right? And from the Buddha's understanding of his own experience, and we can replicate this through paying attention in our own lives, the only meaning that we need to pursue is what we call karma, that of cause and effect, like the lawful unfolding of our conditions that make up our lives. It's lawful. And because it's lawful, then we can, the mind or mindfulness can see it and begin to discern, oh yeah, when, when it's unfolding this way, it's skillful because things like the heart is getting lighter, less entangled. And when things are unfolding this other way, we call it unskillful because the heart, the mind is getting more entangled, heavier. And you see how this clarifies the situation. It's not about whether I should be married or not, keep this job or leave this job, come to Common Ground on Sunday night or not, you know, move to Canada or stay a U.S. citizen or whatever. It's not about these kinds of choices. The relevant question is, however my mind is relating right now or whatever it is that my mind is doing right now, is it skillful or unskillful? So if I'm spinning in doubt, it may seem like the most relevant question in the world that I'm spinning with, but the spinning itself is not skillful. And if we look at the present moment with this lens of is this skillful or not, not to think about it, because seeing whether something is skillful or not is not something we figure out by thinking. We figure it out by directly seeing what's being said in motion, like is this heart, mind, body getting more entangled, more tight, more stressed, more heavy? Or is the heart, mind, body becoming less entangled, more light, more easeful, more clear? Now this is something we can directly observe, but we can't observe that, like how it's unfolding, and still be caught in thought. We actually have to be observing the mind and body. That's what we mean by mindful awareness. We're mindfully aware of the body and mind, directly, immediately. So when we're mindfully aware of the mind, that's not the same as thinking. Now, thinking may be happening, and emoting may be happening, but in terms of mindful awareness, that means, oh, thinking is happening. Thinking's like this. Emotions are moving. They're like this. That's different than being lost in the thought, identified with the thoughts, because then, then we've lost the practice. And the Buddha equates that to as if being already dead. In a way, we're like a robot. When we're lost in thought, there's no light of wisdom. No light of wisdom that can illuminate, oh, this, is, this pattern of thinking and being identified is entangling and burdening the mind immediately, right now. It's, you know, like... Do not pass go, go directly to jail. It's that same sort of thing. The heart, the mind, the body is going to hell right then and there, and we can observe it. Of course, observing it already starts to lead to the loosening of it because we can't consciously go to hell. 
We can only go to hell when we're blindly identified with that unskillful process. So by being mindfully aware of it, being mindfully aware is itself liberating because we see the pattern and we see its unskillfulness and the abandoning follows quickly behind. So removing doubt, starving doubt from the mind, as the Buddha says, is just a matter of bringing wholesome attention or wise attention to what's skillful and unskillful, blameless and blameworthy, noble and low, and other contrasts of dark and bright. Now, you might notice right now you have doubt. Like, what is he talking about? (laughs) How did somebody do that? Can I do that? Right? It's like, because it's not necessarily our habit to notice what the mind is doing and whether it's being skillful or unskillful. But this is the thing about the practice. We are quite literally unaware. You know, the, the word is vidya or ignorance. We are ignorant to the degree we either don't uh, have confidence that the mind is either is capable of being skillful and unskillful and it's relevant. Like To not have confidence that that actually is the most relevant thing for a human being to develop a capacity to observe the mind well enough to discern whether it's being skillful or unskillful. The Buddha would say, you're not actually a human being until you can do that. Right? And the Buddhist cosmology of there this, you know, lots of different realms of existence, people in or I should say beings in hellish places, animals, human beings, angelic beings, you know, even more refined angelic beings. But the idea is what we call a a wise human being is somebody who has enough space in their mind. And part of it is just depends on our conditions. Like if we're overwhelmed by illness or poverty or oppression, it's not so easy to have enough space to observe whether the mind is being skillful or unskillful. So if you can do that, if you have enough interest, enough space in your life, enough like freedom from duties and responsibilities, you should feel really grateful. And so grateful that you're actually going to follow through with this opportunity (laughs) and get interested. Because the real tragedy is when you do have enough, like you live in a, a relatively orderly place like the Twin Cities and you're relatively healthy and you've been exposed to these teachings. You've been, in a sense, invited to do the practice. And then we say, well, I'll do it later, you know, when I retire or, you know, whenever, when I get my to-do list down to a reasonable length or... We keep putting it off. But why not do the practice while we do all those other things? Is the mind being skillful or not? And really learn that, like, just seeing, just dropping into the moment, because it's not about thinking about whether we're being skillful, but noticing the actual effect on the heart. Like, the mind is already relating to experience in a particular way. It's already skillful or unskillful, right? So, to determine its skillfulness or unskillfulness, we just need to be aware of the heart. The heart is just what's at the center of all of this. So when you're suffering, how do you know you're suffering? Well, it hurts. Where does it hurt? Well, you can just say, it hurts my heart. And I'm not even talking about the energetic heart here, although you might feel it here. But that, the location is, is, isn't as important as having a sense that I intuitively know when I'm feeling light and happy and free and easeful. And wherever that is that I know that, that's my heart. And I know when I'm really entangled and feeling oppressed and dark in the sense of like not knowing what to do and, and uh, afraid. Where's that experience? Well, the heart. So being mindful means we're being mindful of this. And when you look at your experience right now, this is the heart. This is where we suffer and this is where we're happy. And now when you look at your experience right now, it's not like three things or two things or ten things. There's just this. It's the thinking mind that makes this 
like all these different parts of me. Like I have my heart, I have my mind, I have my body, you know, I have this mood over here and this. No, there's just this. So when we're mindfully aware of this, then we can be mindfully aware of whether this is getting entangled and tight and heavy or whether this is feeling lighter, more free, less burdened. Don't make it more complicated than that. It's already here, the heart. This is the heart, or you could use the word mind equally well to use the word mind. It's right here. And so by dropping into this and observing whether this is getting tight or released is what causes doubt to fall out of the mind. So instead of thinking, how am I going to be skillful tomorrow? The question is, is the heart being skillful right now? Is the heart becoming more entangled or less entangled right now? That's actually what's relevant. And that's hard because from an insecure thinking person's point of view, we want everything explained to ourselves. You know, we want potential problems to be figured out, to have a, some scenario. But it just leads to us being betrayed. Like if I have a scenario I've worked out in my mind of how I'm going to do Monday, and then it doesn't turn out that way, see, then we feel betrayed. Like, I can't trust my heart to keep me safe. Because I, I worked hard yesterday to think about Monday. You know, and it was stressful. I went through all of that entangling, tense mental activity, and I finally figured it out, and it didn't work. I'm still not happy or <coughs> having a hard time. And then either we want to give up, which doesn't help, or we want to try harder, which doesn't help. What helps is to notice right now whether the heart is skillful or unskillful. Dropping into the present moment, that's what helps. You know, it's important to appreciate that we're in good company. You know, the Buddha, some of you know the story, the legend, sitting under the Bodhi tree, and he was afflicted by doubt at that time. You know, all of the tendencies, the unwholesome, unskillful tendencies of mind sort of raised up against his attempt to be free. And the last, the most seductive of the obstacles he faced, that sort of perver- proverbial night under the Bodhi tree, the night of the, his awakening, was doubt. Where Mara, the sort of personification of all of our fear and greed and ignorance, came to the Buddha and, and caused him doubt. Who are you to be sitting here? Who are you to think that you can see things as they are, be free. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And the, if you don't know the story, the, that's, we don't have it here, but some of the Buddha statues you see have the Buddha touching the earth with one of his hands, just the fingers touching the earth down. And this is the uh, symbol for that time when he called on Mother Earth to vouch for the integrity of his practice. Like... Uh, and the earth shook, basically confirming, because it's all happening within in his own mind. Yeah, you don't need to be, you don't need to fall into that ha- habit of doubt. Your motivation is pure. You just want to see things as they are. It's not an ego trip, basically. So, you might notice that, like uh, one of the kinds of doubt that come up, even for beginning meditators, you know they. They get motivated, they start to sit, and it might be caused because one of their friends says something or their mom says something or they themselves come up, you know, there are a lot of problems in the world. What am I doing just sitting here? This isn't right. This can't be right. There are people who are starving, you know, there's this thing that needs to be done, and then they have doubt, like, oh, maybe maybe I shouldn't do it. So we have to be able to put aside that doubt ourselves. And even Jesus has something similar like that as they describe it in the Bible that night or the evening on the cross. And he says something like, why have you forsaken me? Talking to God, why have you forsaken me? So this uh, experience of doubt is inherent in our human existence. 
we have to learn how to work with doubt. And if you talk to any experienced meditators, they'll, they'll be able to name all the different ways doubt manifests. And a lot of the ways we get drawn into life where we become a parent, for example, planned or unplanned, or we become a partner, or we become a house uh, owner of a home, or whatever it is. And then great doubt can arise. What am I doing? How did I get here? And the question is, are we going to spin or are we going to settle? And in that settling, just do what's next. Because life, the, you know, the very existence of life is this stepping forward into the unknown. It's not like uncertainty is a mis- due to a mistake we made, like I'm facing uncertainty or I'm feeling insecure because I'm an incompetent human being and all of the rest of you have somehow mastered life and don't experience doubt or insecurity or uncertainty. That's sort of what we feel like We're embarrassed to talk about feelings of vulnerability or uncertainty or doubt. But instead we want to, this is one of the nice things about a Dharma community, a group of people who practice mindfulness, is that we're not afraid to acknowledge to each other that, oh yeah, doubt is just part of the landscape of the mind. It's just there. Same with greed and lust. Same with aversion and hate and fear same with dullness and restlessness. This is, as we say, this is how it is sometimes. Oh, it's doubt. It's just doubt. And this is really the way out of the different debilitating experiences of doubt. One of the ways the Buddha described it, you know, that debilitating state is as if you've somehow ended up in a really dangerous neighborhood where you're not supposed to be. And uh, or not at that time of night, or whatever it is. And, you know, for him, the way he described it is going across the desert. Because back then, of course, there were dangerous animals, or heat, or no water. And doubt has this feeling like, I'm in danger. That's what triggers the sort of desperate thinking, or way, trying to think our way out of it. The inefficient, ineffective spinning of the mind. Because we feel endangered. And you know, like children, when they feel stressed or endangered, they revert to earlier age. You know, they may be a six year old, but when they're really stressed, they become a three year old. And it's the same with us. When we're endangered, we don't, it doesn't occur to us to relax and be mindful and to settle into the moment and to notice what's skillful and unskillful. Because then we're actually. We're not in doubt anymore. Oh yeah, when the mind relates in this way, it becomes more attached and it hurts. Or when the mind relates in this way, with kindness or forgiveness, it doesn't hurt so much. And the heart feels lighter and more connected. And all of a sudden life makes sense. We're not in control of it, but we know how to be skillful. That is the one empowering Thing we can ask from life. If we're willing to do this practice, we can uh, expect to know, to learn, little by little, how to be skillful, no matter the particular conditions that come our way. We, ne- we can't demand or expect that we can control our health or control how other people are around us, whether they're rational or irrational, or whether global warming kills off most of the life on the planet or not. There may be, you know, minor things we can do, but we may not be that much in control of so much of the external conditions of our life. But we can, through careful, mindful observation, learn how to relate skillfully to whatever comes our way, including death and loss and great success and happiness. There are ways to relate skillfully to happy or to success, and there are ways to relate unskillfully to success. There are ways to relate skillfully to tragedy and there are ways to relate unskillfully to tragedy. But if we don't settle, we'll never see, we'll never learn. 
there's a lot to say. Maybe I'll save the rest for next week. And it gives us 15 minutes. <clears throat> As I sort of mentioned a few times in the talk, there are probably, you know, all of us in our own way are experts because we've had to work with doubt in so many different ways over the years. It'd be nice to hear from people now all of the successes and all of the challenges you've had working with doubt, all the ways it's still confusing, still seductive for you, ways that you've been able to step outside of it in your life, have more space around it, and of course, any questions you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Well, one of the things that happens as we pay attention to our life more and more is we see more clearly the limitations of strategies that lead to temporary happiness for ourselves and for others. And so we're less, uh, we don't value them as highly as we might have in the past. So you might see that your efforts, your appropriate efforts to be more skillful are rubbing other people the wrong way and possibly actually creating suffering for them. But the fact is, what we're learning directly in our own mind is that the causes for real happiness and real suffering are right here. We can actually cause other people's suffering. I'm not saying that if I say something to my wife, it wouldn't really hurt. But it is possible to cultivate enough wisdom, enough understanding, so that our well-being isn't dependent on whether our partner is a jerk or not. It is possible. Now, we don't need to intentionally do things to cause harm. But what is really useful for us to do is model living and relating in ways that lead to happiness. That's what we need to see in each other. We need to see people modeling how to be happy. And when they're modeling how to be unhappy, we need to see them modeling, honestly recognizing, oh, this isn't working. This isn't the way. That's what's really helpful. And when we are in a situation where our motives seem to be good, as best we can tell, now we may, they may seem good, but there may be some things we're blind to, like we're really trying to give it to them, but we think we're being skillful. But anyway, if our motivations seem skillful, we have to be okay about what happens to other people. And it's not our intention to cause harm, but we're not in control of other people's happiness or unhappiness. It really depends much more on what their mind is doing in that moment than what our responsibility. And so we need to, just in the same way we're trying to take responsibility for this mind's happiness and unhappiness, we have to give that responsibility to those people we love or those people around us. And I find that really hard to do. I think a lot of us do. Because, especially us, the people who tend to be more controlling types, we not only want to control our happiness and unhappiness, and often not in skillful ways, but we feel responsible for controlling other people's happiness and unhappiness, often not in very skillful ways. And we make the world a messier place, and we justify this all over the place. Invading Iraq was to help make people happy. So we said. Yeah, it's a really good question. And it really has to do with training the thinking mind to be in the service of mindful awareness. So instead of making thinking bad, appreciating that thinking really has two purposes. One is it helps us connect with other people because language is one of the primary ways we connect with others and in community. And in terms of the practice, more importantly, thinking can help direct the mind, the thinking, the uh, observing or knowing mind, right? So we can use thought like the question, which is a thought, is this skillful or not? What's the mind doing? Is this skillful or not? That's thinking, but that's thinking that is directing the observing mind, the knowing mind, to the mental activity itself. So knowing, the mind that knows is knowing what the mind is doing, what the thinking mind is doing. And it's observing it with this uh, lens of like what's unfolding, what's coming out of this mental activity. Are things getting tight? Are things getting light? So that comes really from sustaining the attention. It's not enough to just be aware of the mind in a moment. We have to sustain the mindful awareness so we see what it's actually getting set in motion. 
So any kind of thought, like even talking to other people, if the thinking is leading to the mind being more interested in the mind itself, that's really useful thinking. If the thinking is leading to the mind wanting to think more, that's not useful thinking. And that's really, it really comes down to that. What is, this is again about skillful and unskillful. Is, because basically the question you're asking is, how can I tell if thinking is skillful or not? And the answer is, is the thinking leading to more thinking, which just, there's no end to it, and it's eventually, or not even very far off, exhausting, right? Or is thinking leading to a more immediate, direct, mindful awareness of what's going on, which leads to insight. Insight just means a deepening of understanding. Understanding about what? Understanding about how to be skillful. So that as the mind relates in the future, it's going to be less entangled and more free. That's what insight does. So if the thinking is supporting insight, then things are getting lighter and lighter. When things are lighter and lighter, we use thinking less and less as an escape from the unpleasantness of our mental habits. See, this is the great, this is really the definition of things like doubt, is we're thinking in a way that we call doubt to avoid feeling how yucky it feels to be thinking in a way we're calling doubt. You see, it's really insane. So we need to use thinking to, like, oh, is, this is just doubt. That's a thought. But it's a really useful thought because it's grounding in the present moment. Oh, this is unpleasant. Well, can this be okay? In other words, is it safe for the heart to feel how unpleasant it feels to recognize uncertainty and doubt and confusion? Can the heart be stable, the mind, the body be stable with that yucky feeling? Oh, yeah. And then, and then as I get a little bit more stable, if I then, out of habit, start to identify with the doubt and want to think, now there's some stability, there's some clarity, and I see, oh, that's not skillful. That's just making it hurt more. It seems like the right thing to do because of habit, but actually I can directly feel in my heart, this is worse. So we put it down. And then maybe we bring in some forgiveness. Well, you know, this is just how it is. It isn't easy being a human being. And then all of a sudden things feel a little lighter. Oh, that's skillful. Having compassion and forgiveness with the painful feeling of doubt and uncertainty and insecurity is skillful. Oh, I trust this. So those thoughts are really supportive of this kind of work. So it's, we want to be careful about making thinking the bad, you know, the bad guy. No, no, but that really relates to what we're saying because remember the, the predominant or the most important characteristic of doubt is that paralyzed feeling where the inaction seems like the appropriate response to the, the question, what should I do, right? And how could inaction be the appropriate response? It's not a skillful response. So your point, Mark, is that, well, do something, right? Because doing something will learn one way or another. It was, oh, that wasn't the right thing to do. I'm going to get out of the pool. Or, no, that felt right. It feels good. I'm glad I did it. So, because then we're learning. There was uh, one of my teachers way back when in the 80s was a man named Swami Satchidananda. He was quite famous back in the late 60s and 70s in Indian uh, uh, yogi. And a uh, man with a lot of wisdom. He, was the, he did the peace invocation at Woodstock. You might have, I think he was even on the album, if those of you of that age got that album. But anyway, uh, he once did a talk in L.A. with Buckminster Fuller, who was an inventor and kind of a well-known person. And they were both speaking. And um, after Swami Satchidananda had spoken, then Buckminster Fuller was saying, and uh, he was talking about how important it is to go out and make as many mistakes as you can. (laughs) You know, just to engage life, just to respond, to do something, because it leads to a lot of learning. And basically what he was saying is that don't get stuck in doubt. Because doubt demands that we know what's going to happen. But we can never really know. We just have to act. 
we have as much wisdom as we have. In some moments, we have a lot of background knowledge because we've been in sim- a similar situation before. But there are a lot of times in life we don't really know. We don't have a lot of direct experience. We don't know whether to go right or left. But that doesn't mean an action is the most skillful thing to do. Other thoughts that come to mind? We have just a couple more minutes, maybe time for one more. Yeah, Mina. Uh, yeah. And your point is so important about when you can name it, immediately it's already a little lighter. Like they have that image uh, from the um, dark ages of like if you could learn the name of the dragon, you had some power, right? But what you can't name, that's really scary. But if you can name it, if you can see it. So that's the thing. It's not even so much having a name, but the name in a way frames the experience so wisdom can see, oh, it's just this. It's just this. And wisdom is that space, right? You have to step out to know that it's just this. If you're caught in it, you can't know it's just this. So it's the space of wisdom that, oh, yeah, it's just doubt. I've had some very transforming moments in my practice where just that moment of seeing doubt. And it was sort of energetic when you shared, Mina, even though now it's a month or so later. Um, we just, oh yeah, to name something changes it forever. And because the next time, it'll be a little bit easier for the mind to step out and go, oh, it's just doubt. It's just doubt. And then, like you said, then... We can make the choice to settle into the moment to feel, oh, and doubt feels like this. It's unpleasant like this. I don't need to be afraid or react or run from this unpleasant feeling because I know how to be mindful of it. Let's 8.30, so let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath together. So in this uncertain world, <clears throat> let's be... The ones who practice recognizing and opening to doubt, not afraid to feel what we feel, learn how to be skillful, to be causes for peace and freedom from suffering here in our hearts and in the world. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.